good, everybody. This has been Technique Podcast with your boys, Silas and Christian, for the Fight Side Podcast Network. And we're here today mostly looking at UFC 289. Towards the end of the episode, we'll do some stuff on this fight night coming up. Is kind of whatever. It's uh, it's a fight night in 2023. Yeah, uh, UFC 289. Uh, Amanda Nunes easily defeats an extremely tepid Rene Aldana and then retires, which good for her. People throwing around goat status a lot. It's whatever. I don't really care about that. She's certainly one of the best uh, women's MMA fighters that we have ever seen, at least on resume. And, you know, I think people give Amanda Nunes a lot of shit for kind of like skill depth and having a bunch of issues that she gets away with because she's in a bad division and has like massive athletic advantages over all of her opponents. But um, I don't know. It's not her fault that the UFC doesn't give a shit about this division um, and that she's just like already too easily better than everyone to have to get any better than she is. Like uh, Amanda Nunes is pretty good. This is a good showing for her and good luck to her in the future. Yeah, I would also, I, I think she's gotten better progressively. Like, I, I definitely, think, like, I don't think she even regressed at any point until she retired. I think she was still getting better. Like, the, the performance was a uh, monumental bed shitting by Aldana. She barely tried anything new and seemed just kind of frozen by the moment. Did not look prepared in the slightest. No, it, it, it looked like she didn't have a training camp, but just got in great, crazy shape. Like she, she didn't train for her opponent at all and had almost no idea what to do in, in reference to what Amanda was coming at her with. Amanda didn't really end the fight with anything super specific or interesting uh, matchup wise either. She just put on a good performance and didn't have to adjust anything she was doing uh, outside of a few particular moments that we'll get into uh, at, at points that allowed Adana to get a single bit of offense off that she had to deal with but yeah Nunez basically just kind of dunked on Aldana from range never let Aldana like draw her into the pocket where she might have actually been able to find good counter punches apart from like one moment in the first round where uh, Aldana landed a good right hand because uh, Nunez was just kind of like I guess feeling herself a little bit and just went for a big just like wonky shifting combination, just like stepping through, pumping left and right hand. And Aldana just dings her with a right straight while she's overextending. And Nunes was like, okay, I'm going to go back to not doing that and just dominating with jabs and kicks from really far away. And I'm not going to get hit by that right hand again. And she didn't. She, she had situations in the, around like the third round and the first round where Aldana landed a, a nice counter to, to deal with, like just a, a lapse in judgment by Nunez in the the first round, she she got tagged by a right hand a little bit uh, while evading goofily. It it was just a really easy opening that Nunez had to sharpen up a little bit as the fight went on, and then uh, towards the third round or fourth round, uh, Aldana started landing cross counters over uh, Nunez's jab that she had previously just been landing for free, and. All she had to do was just like change the timing up on it a little bit and start jabbing uh, to interrupt instead of just jabbing to keep it out there. It, it was just incredibly simple fix if your jab is anything more than two layers deep. So she and she ended up just kind of outclassing Aldana. I think even if Aldana had a good performance, she wouldn't have really gotten much offense off. 
uh, we, met, we touched on it last week, but the the way their shot selection matches up against each other is just horrid for Aldana. She doesn't have that many options to deal with Nunez's preferred options. Uh, a lot of things Nunez does, like straight punches and uh, only really attacking going forward, or if she gets a free counter opportunity, that doesn't play well into Aldana's preferred striking of exchanging with left hooks. Uh, we slipping a jab then left hooking really just N- Nunez is particularly difficult to left hook and Aldana's left uppercut isn't going to find too many opportunities because Nunez doesn't throw her right hand as much as you would expect her to she she's known as a, a big power puncher but a lot of her offense is just prodding with the lead hand in her, her more recent battles I think the big thing for Aldana was just the fact that she really needs people to be pressing exchanges with her in order to find counters and she just is not comfortable leading or coming forward and so she isn't able to like kind of throw things away in a first layer to get someone firing back to to then find the counters and she is you know she was just waiting for Nunez to make mistakes and capitalized a couple of times when Nunez did but you know was relying on knocking Nunez out in one of those singular instances to get the fight done and she just you know she she just lost every round and then started getting out wrestled towards the end as well yeah the fifth round uh, Nunez got some pretty vicious ground and pound shots to the body towards the end it looked like if she had come into the fight with that specific approach where she just pressure wrestled and and like aggroed at her with with wrestling until she got her down because she she took her down three times in in the round and and just kept getting her back down every time Aldani got up because she stayed on her, uh, kind of uncharacteristic of Nunez. I'm not sure we've ever had a fight where she goes so insistently about wrestling people, or wrestling her opponent. And and she it looked like if the, that had started earlier, then the fight would have been finished in like two rounds. Aldani really had nothing off her back. Yeah, and and what we we were kind of saying that if Nunez was going to win this fight by decision. It wasn't going to be particularly interesting to watch. Um, I mean, it kind of wasn't, but it was mostly Aldana's fault. I think in, if, from Nunez's part, this is probably four or five round decision at her most like comprehensive, like all encompassing and probably highest pace, just complete shutout of her championship. Yeah, the Felicia rank. Spencer fight, uh, Felicia was. She she made Nunez a, a little bit more cautious. I, I think she might have thrown a, a bit more in the earlier rounds, but she didn't have to amp anything up at all. And at least Aldana, you know, at points just made her get her, like, beat her ass more. By eventually starting to walk straight at Nunez. That was something that was the biggest issue, is even when Aldana was trying, it was trying in the complete wrong direction. She did not need to start walking on straight lines against someone whose main counter weapon is just stepping off to the side and then trying to throw a big power shot that's fast and powerful. Especially with how poor Aldani's shot selection is when pressuring. She, she's not a pressure fighter. She she likes to stand at range and at most kind of meander at you or meander into your range gradually. So yeah, basically... Um... Good for Amanda Nunes. Uh, you don't see all-time greats get to go out on top very often. 
Yeah, it was neat. Uh, there's certainly been worse, like final fights by people that are that are very good. There certainly has. So, um, I don't know what the fuck happens at women's bantamweight now because the UFC kind of just hasn't really invested in this division basically at all. Or, and I don't know if that's just the case that there actually aren't that many women's bantamweights and that most most fighters if they can will just fight flyweight it seems like they're almost definitely going to do some permutation of juliana pena fighting for the belt because she was already scheduled to fight for the belt she pulled out of this fight due to injury or i believe the injury just pulled out of this fight so don't really know how it's gonna work out because there's not a there's not even a clear number two contender in the division right now unless it's uh like Aldania. But Aldania looked too bad to give her another title shot. It was just that'd just be cruel. Yeah, I guess there's a fight coming up between Holly Holm and Myra Bueno Silva. But even then, it really unless Myra Bueno Silva knocks out Holly Holm and, and makes it like a highlight reel knockout that kind of Masvidals her into the, the into a title shot. I don't see them doing that one either. Like, even if Holly Holm won, either, Holly's just kind of proven herself to be a little too unreliable. I, I, I would hope. At this point. They love giving Holly Holm title shots, and everyone still fucking loves Holly Holm, even though it is well-established. She is a tremendously boring fighter and has been for a very long time. Um, not, not just boring, but also extremely dysfunctional in a lot of ways. But generally... They also don't give people Holly Holm unless they expect them to be a thing and want to kind of get them some name value to push them into a title shot. So I've, I feel like the winner of that could easily be in the picture because, what I mean, what else do you do? Like you say, Aldana needs another win where she shows something. I tend to agree that they'll probably just put Pena back in since she was recently champion and was supposed to be fighting for the belt this time around. But like everyone yeah, else has kind of just flamed out of this division. I guess there's I guess there's still Kellen Vieira hanging around who is coming off a win over Holly Holm. Kellen Vieira is good. Um I think Kellen Vieira should get one, but she was also kind of passed up for one uh like a few years ago. She she's she got Benil Dariush. Like she got she got fucking dusted once by someone and and then they're like, nah, we can't we can't push her at all. And then she had a huge layoff after the I think it was after the Aldana loss. Um she, she had a, a like a year long layoff that just took away all of her momentum. So back when she should have gotten one instead of Raquel Pennington. But yeah, basically like this division having any kind of future really does rely on Myra Bueno Silva beating Holly Holm, and there's a good chance that she doesn't. Yeah, my my current thought is that uh, Holly Holm's going to win that fight and take very little damage, and then like a couple months later, fight Pena, and then she might beat Pena. Yeah, probably. Kind of a rough fight for Pena if she can't, uh, if Holly Holm looks in even remotely decent form. Yeah, but Holly Holm is old, and you know that that that, that Misha Tate fight still happened. Yeah, she's a bit of a 
head shitter. I, I see, I see Pena doing some shit like that, just kind of like getting her ass whooped, and then Holly Holm eventually capitulating and getting strangled. She, she's um. It, people don't think of her as a bed shitter as much as they think of her as just someone that can't win the big fights outside of the the one fight that she won that uh, made her relevant. But she's a bit of a bed shitter. She looked fucking awful against Nunez, despite that being an okay matchup in theory if she looks good. Uh, she also got, you know, a kind of Leon versus Naden against Misha Tate, albeit with a a much better fighter rel- relative to where she should have been at that point. Because uh, Misha, Misha Tate was a good fighter. You know, it was, it was fair loss. But in the fifth round, whatever you've been winning, like, very comfortably, it's just a bad look. Uh, and, she, like, she's shit the bed against people, everyone that isn't a can, pretty much. Like, she didn't, she didn't even do anything that she maybe could have done in the Cyborg matchup. I think that's just a terrible matchup for her. But she could have done certain things that she didn't even try to do in that fight. She really just doesn't. Uh, she she kind of crumbles in certain situations. So I could see her uh, pain just like running through her. Oh, and I guess um, I guess another possibility is kind of regardless of the uh, outcome of the rematch between Valentina Shevchenko and Alexa Grasso. I think there's a good chance that Valentina just goes back up to bantamweight. Oh, that's fair. Uh, people are also saying Aaron Blanchfield might be wanting to go up to 135. I mean, you know, it, the division really is wide open now. If, it's open if, season. If, like, if, if you're a big-ish women's flyweight... We're, we're going to see Jessica I go up to 135 again. My sleeper pick for, for champion by the end of the year is Lauren Murphy. Okay, and then on to a like an actually very relevant fight that yep. was fucking awesome. People's main event, champion of people, champion of our hearts, Charles D. Bronx. Um, I will say, I don't feel dumb for giving Benil Dariush a very solid chance of winning that fight, even though Charles kind of fucking dunked his nuts in Benny's mouth. I think that's fair. Um, I think Benny... He showed why there was a reason to be picking him, but the odds were nuts. Like the fact that he was a favorite at all. And gamblers, dude, Charles coming off a loss to a Southpaw grappler. It's like... really because it it kind of proves like the flaw with the the odds, like the odds makers, uh, like planning. Because really, it's just if someone lost their last fight, they're just gonna pick against you. You know. <laughs> That, that, that's really all it is. They just expect you to lose once, then never win again. Also, but I, don't, I don't know. If, I don't know where the line started, and if like it started closer, and there was just a lot of money coming in on Benil. It, it felt like that was it because our for pretty much the entire lead up, all I was seeing online is people saying that Benny probably gets wiped because Charles is basically every reason that Charles ended up winning. The the speed difference on the feet was insane and then charles is good enough on the ground to just kind of stand up if he really needs to and, and get back to the the feet where you know one thing that everyone that is knocked down uh connor or, or fuck that I, I i saw connor mcgregor's face and then said connor um <laughs> one thing that charles has consistently been knocked down by in his more recent lightweight run was people that are fast, you know, 
like Dustin Poirier, he's not the fastest guy in the world, but he's a sharp hitter and he, he sneaks up on you with stuff. He drops everyone. He's the best boxer in the division. Justin Gaethje, he f- hits fucking hard as shit and is incredibly fast and is a, like a thudding hitter who's going to be exchanging with Charles all the time. Uh, Michael Chandler, one of the fastest, like pure hand speed athletes in the division's history, even though he's still old or, or even though he's old at this point and has lost some speed. And then, you know, David Tamer, who's a really good counter puncher and pretty quick. Benil Darius is just flatly a lot slower than all of those people. And, and it, I didn't think it was going to be as dramatic based off of, uh, Benil's more recent performance performances where his speed didn't really play a factor. He like, he, he just looked like a not fast guy, but the, in the end sequence, it looked like a guy that hasn't fought before getting, getting like beaten up by a professional fighter, even though the rest of the fight, he looked perfectly fine. He just got buzzed. And then he, he lost a, a bit of hand speed and like foot speed because he, he kind of, he got like rocked ish by a head kick that kicked into his arms. Uh, it, it was just a, it made him look like he was getting fraud checked despite him actually still being a, a somewhat close and level fighter. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it was just like how I expected Benil to to approach the matchup that made me think, oh, he's gonna get kind of just like run over. It's just that uh, I kind of said that for Benil to win this matchup, he was just gonna have to be ready to meet Charles in collisions from the beginning of the first round, and and yeah, Benil is too willing to let someone pressure if that's what they really want to do, because he can be pretty good at taking the back foot, moving his feet and drawing people onto shots. But um, you just shouldn't do that against Charles Oliveira. Uh, I think Benny just really needed to be looking to like use the exchanges to get into the clinch more because we saw when they tied up, Benny could absolutely compete with Charles in the clinch. And um, yeah, ended up spending a couple of minutes on top because Charles just like, went for a body lock takedown and got reversed and just didn't fight it and was like, fuck it, I'll play guard. And at this point, I'm like, Charles, what are you, what are you doing? Stop, stop being fucking stupid. What are you doing? And then he was like, wait, this is stupid. I got to go win. And as you say, he did basically get up as, as soon as he wanted to. Um, still not a reason that Benny shouldn't have been looking more to just, uh, as I say, he should have just been trying to slip inside everything to, to create tie-ups and try and take Charles down because yeah, when we saw that speed difference on the feet, as you say, it was pretty rough for Benny. And he was actually pretty well prepared for uh, Charles's front kick. And like the one like decent shot he landed was a counter left hand off of parrying Charles's front kick, but he was not ready for, uh, for that big old right high kick of Charles. Yeah, and Charles, it's, not, it's he's not like known for that kick or anything, but I, you've seen in the training since, I believe it was the Dustin Poirier fight, since he's reliably started going against, uh, or needed to fight a southpaw that he had to specifically prepare for. He likes anti-southpaw tactics. You know, he watches J-Kick. He knows what to do in, in striking matchups, shot selection-wise. He, he has incredible feel for fighting as well. He just was like, oh, I just need to pin this guy's rear hand to his head and off-put them and get them moving backwards and throw in a big power kick. going to do that. So he, he has a good right high kick, and Benny was going for left body kicks while Charles was, Charles was meeting it with a right high kick, which is a really good counter to it because it, it does stop you from throwing kicks if someone's constantly kicking uh, 
like your base out from under you if if you are trying to to like throw real power on the back foot. It, it's it's very it's very hard to keep up a, a back foot kicking performance while your opponent is kicking as frequently as you. Yeah, and you always like to see uh, the orthodox fighter be keenly aware of open side tactics in uh, an open stance matchup because these are generally things that people think of as southpaw tactics. But it's the open stance; like you can do that shit off of both sides, and it works the same, which comes up later in the card as well. Yeah, it's what you would hope for in a. Uh like in a championship fighter, you know, like he, he knows what to do to approach the matchup. He, he doesn't have MMA brain for it. Yeah. And then the finishing sequence was just filthy. It was all fucking J kick do Bronx after you see, he kind of like kind of wobbles beneath a little bit with the high kick. Thinking more just off balance him and scared him. Like, I, I think he was shaken by it. Yeah. And then Charles, like he throws a right straight and Benny, he, he slips the right straight and goes to circle out, but Charles shifts, shifts through off of it hits this fucking gorgeous southpaw right hook as Benny's circling off like a Justin Gaethje versus Edson Barboza style. And then, yeah, Benny's all kind of fucked up. He drops to a single. Um, you see, you know, he, he, even when he's like basically out, Benny has tremendous grappling instincts and do, does a really nice job of uh, uh, defending Charles's back take and like rolling through off of a leg entanglement. But then he just ends up in bottom half and just gets nailed by a right straight that basically just puts him out cold and the ref didn't quite catch it and let Benny be a warrior. So he just like got repeatedly woken up and then put to sleep again by ground and pound for the next few seconds before the ref stopped it. <laughs> it's brutal, dude. Yeah, it's a... I mean, we called out a lot of what would happen in the fight. So... It was not a surprising performance at all for me. It does bring up something that I, I want to touch on, which is uh, it's just like a weird trend that happens in MMA where people will say someone's a bad matchup for someone just because they can win it. Uh, I that is Benio's not a bad matchup for Charles. He he has some things that are difficult for Charles, but he he's not a foil for Charles in any regard. I think this fight did prove uh both strategically and tactically even though they're like physicality matches out i just it's a real fucking difficult fight for being able to win consistently that he has some things you can point to as a reason that he can win does not mean that uh he is a good matchup against or has a good matchup with charles yeah i mean that's easy to say now that we've seen it oh yeah i i agree um it it certainly is a fight where you needed to see it to be able to make that uh to make that judgment so like like hindsight's 2020 i guess but this is a, a real example of, of something that's very common in mma where someone will have the ability to win and then people will start picking them and think that that means that the person doesn't just have a 20 percent chance to win the fight if a lot of things go well for them as you say particularly now that we've actually seen how it plays out it seems real rough for benny you know it uh, as i say it seems like he just has to constantly force tie-ups and try and get takedowns to work charles on top but if charles is actually like minding his shit and trying to not let that happen it's just as i said he just brings too much violence too quickly and you, you need to be able to respond to it in very particular ways yeah if you don't have like an x factor to to really uh like hurt uh, charles on the feet then you're not gonna you're not going to uh, the, Charles had his first fight of his 
like last four fights where he didn't get dropped or or even hurt by a single thing that his opponent threw, and then he still went out and won. So, so like you don't even have people act like Charles has to get hurt to like go fuck someone up. He doesn't. He comes at you the entire time. He he just gets fucked up coming at you the entire time. This was just someone that was slow enough to where he could actually find a single read and it work the first time. You know, like he was landing good uppercuts on on uh, Dustin. He was landing like really nice right hands on on Dustin at certain points. The knees to the body were really good, but Dustin's durable as fuck. He's like one of the most durable fighters in the division, and uh, he's also like compare comparably. Uh, he just actually has the ability to hang in the pocket with Charles Oliveira. Yeah, like he he can he could be there, and Benil had no opportunity for that. And then you know a fighter like Gaethje, he's just powerful enough and fast enough, and also good in the pocket and has good counters uh, to where him conceivably beating Charles, uh, like and Charles had to fuck him up on the feet, which he did uh, to actually get him to the ground comfortably. You know, I'm sure if the fight went on like another two or three rounds, Charles would have, uh, or one or two rounds, and Charles would have ended up just submitting him off the takedown. But like, he didn't even really go for takedowns. He didn't. I, I'm just sure he, at some point he would have uh, had just to took fight him down with his fucking fist. But you know, like there, there's reasons to think that Justin Gaethje had a win condition, and the same for Benil. But uh, unlike those fights where you know Michael Chandler, Dustin Poirier, and uh, Gaethje, I, I really. In hindsight, I don't think um, Benil really has a, a chance against Charles when it comes to how, when you're, I mean, he, of course he has a chance, like everyone has a chance. Even 20%, though, is a fucking incredibly slim chance when trying to pick matchups. It, and I can't say that for uh, any of those other fighters. Like, I, I think any of them still could win against Charles. It's like 30, 40%. Like, would you be surprised if Dustin Poirier fought Charles Oliveira in uh, a couple of fights and then just wins? No. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised you know, at all. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's fair. You, you know, you know, you know the man. difference between a fight that between a punch that buzzes you real bad and a punch that knocks you out a little fucking cold is like millimeters. At any point, any of the times that those guys dinged Charles or you know would have opportunities to ding Charles in a second fight, he might simply get finished. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess you guys just give Charles the rematch against Islam. Yeah, there's not yeah, a got that. fight. Charles has beaten every fighter in the top five except for Islam. Yeah, they got that uh, Abu Dhabi card in October as well. And uh, I think the turnaround for the winner of uh, Poirier versus Gaethje 2 would just be too short to fight for the title. They're going to want to have something booked before then. And... Uh, Charles has beaten both of those guys already. And as well, like, I think Charles is really just getting the the love from the fans in the mainstream as like a mainstay action fighter in, in the same way that those guys have had for a long time. Like, pe- people in people in Canada are fucking booing Benil Dariush because everybody just loves Dubronx so much. Like, you know, even DC in the commentary was just like, how can you not be a fan of this guy? He fucking rules. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Charles is Mr. Worldwide. He said in his post-fight, uh, I'm not just Brazilian anymore. I'm I'm here for everyone. Like, I'm from everywhere. 
like people people love him. He, he's a he's he's gonna get a title shot if he just either waits for for a fight to come up because uh, I think Islam's currently out for injury or something. Just because he's injured doesn't mean that Dana isn't gonna book a fight. Yeah, um, but it, it seems like everyone kind of wants the Makhachev fight unless they're a doomer. And Charles has enough avenues to where he could win that. Plus, I think just the general public has a belief in Charles that even if the matchup's still rough for him, they're like, oh, no, but he'll, he'll, he'll get it this time. Just like narratively, he has to win. Well, as I say, who else are you going to give it to anyway? There's no one. If, the the uh, only other guy that could have gotten the title shot that uh, really deserves one is Benil. And at this point, Gaethje and Dustin have lost to the two grapplers in the divisions, top five, or, or like, actually ground finishers in the top five it's like yeah we haven't seen those fights but we kind of have yeah at this point if if they fought uh makashev it would be um a grappler that can finish them as easily as the other two can on the ground that also has a real a sneakily more difficult like striking matchup i think makashev just being a counterpuncher is really fucking awkward for both gaichi and dustin because they have to come forward uh, a lot of the time or be at range with someone that has uh, better intercepting takedowns and also can take them down on in the clinch more comfortably than uh, Habib or Charles could. Uh, Charles, he had to deal with uh, a bit of like a, a strength matchup thing against Dustin Poirier, uh, where you know Charles is very strong, but Dustin is has incredible like back strength and can like stop himself from being taken down in the clinch comfortably and just keep his base. And then Gaethje has fucking wacky hips. And it also did, Charles didn't even really try takedowns on him. So it's just a, it's an awkward matchup for both guys, I think. So I, I, I don't expect there's a way that, uh, yeah, much as, you know, much as we all, we all love both of those guys, but, it it is really you're looking at looking at either, a fight with looking at a fight between either of them and Islam Makachev is just like uh maybe one of them knock Islam out in the first minute. <laughs> yeah, but like we can say that about every striker striker against Makachev probably because he's he's a good striker, but at, at this but he's still the grappler guy that uh, we've seen knocked out before. So everyone's gonna always have. Like that thought in their head, but oh, we might get knocked out. He remember when he got uh, starched by a decent southpaw counterpunch, you know? Like that, that's certainly a factor, but um, I don't don't know. I've I've just seen both. That was also a very long time ago when Makachev was a lot worse at striking. Yeah, it was. uh, Sometimes you just get dusted because you're not good. Yeah, like Charles Oliveira was, was getting subbed by Ricardo Lamas at the same time. So, can't, can't really use that or, or like you know Khabib who was a lot further along his career than uh, Charles or Makachev at that point was uh, taking more than two rounds to finish Michael Johnson totally lose it to T-Bow so it being a really long time ago on top of the fact that uh, these guys have lost to people that are comparable grapplers and also have like they, they've just lost to too much of a variety at this point because Charles in, in the Khabib are incredibly different, even though they have uh, some similarities. It seems like the only differences between uh, Islam and those two fighters are things that are worse for for Dustin and Gaethje. Yeah. 
such as a guy that's a bit more patient on the feet and is going to let you make more mistakes and get yourself taken down. And he's also out of those three, maybe the best at uh, locking down a position when he gets you down. They really did fuck up by making uh, this fight in the first place because I genuinely still would be interested to see a, see a Benil Dariush fight Islam Makachev. Yeah. Doesn't fucking matter now. No, never getting a fucking it's, title it's, shot. It's over. Never getting a title shot. No, because who's he going to beat, you know? His next fight's probably going to be against uh, someone hard for him, like Sarukian, that he might beat. Yeah, probably someone who's pretty hard that no one gives a fuck about who, yeah, as you say, he might beat, but no one's going to care, and he's going to have to go on like another nine-fight win streak, by which point he'll just be old as hell. Yeah, like realistically, I think his next fight's probably going to be in about six months, you know, with uh, having giving the he got knocked out and he's also not uh, the most active fighter anyways. He, he fights, you know, a couple to a few times a year. So realistically he probably fights in about six months from now, if, like Sarukin or someone, um, and then maybe beats him, maybe loses. If he loses, he's never even going to get almost to a title shot again. And then if he wins, he still has to win another matchup probably against Gaethje, Dustin or Charles again. Yeah, that that being said, I would actually just quite like to see him fight the loser of Justin Gaethje versus Dustin Poirier too. I agree. I think that's uh, probably, but he probably won't get that fight, as you as you say. He's probably going to fight fucking Armin Sarukian or something like that. Yeah, I can't think of anyone else they've given given that like since he's beaten Gamrot, uh, because Gamrot, honestly, matchup wise makes the most sense, even though he's beaten him now. Uh, I feel like I know what would happen in the Sarukian fight, and uh, like I'm, I also don't think it would be that good of a fight. And and I don't think Sarukian even would be willing to take that fight because he could get a higher ranked fight that's more likely to get him an actual title shot. Whereas Sarukian, if he beats Benil, he still needs another win. I, I feel like as a win, Benil's just uh, gotten kind of degraded in the eyes of the fans too much for them to give him someone that he reasonably should be fighting. I guess there's Fazeev still floating around as well. Yeah. Uh, and also, a lot of people think that Fazeev won the, the Gaethje fight. So, at least with like the underground MMA fans, uh, he, he still has enough favor to where people don't think that he would just get wiped by anyone. Oh, I hope they do Fazeev, uh, Dustin, and Benil versus Gaethje the next fight. Like, in a perfect world, I think that's the, the best thing they should do, regardless of if Dustin or Gaethje wins or wins or loses, because either way, I don't think Dustin or, or Justin deserves a title shot if they win again, so... Or with this win against each other. I need to see them fight a grappler and win. You know, give them Sarukian or, or uh, Gamrot. Okay. So I guess we'll just uh, fucking storm the rest of this card real quick. Um, yeah, speaking of uh, the orthodox fighter tooling a southpaw with open side tactics, uh, Mike Malott, uh, beat the shit out of Adam Fugit and knocked him out. Mike Malott is pretty cool. He was kind of just wanging big old right body kicks and had a, a Fugit like really overreacting to them and then like kind of fainted one and shifted through off of the threat of it and uh, dinged him with a big, big right hand and then a big left hand and then did a guillotine. It was pretty sick. Yep, Mike Malott's badass. Uh, probably going to fight a marginal step up after this one because uh it's an okay win but he's still pretty green he's he's 10 one and one so uh he, he should 
fight someone below Jack Dylan Maddalena, but I mean, he should just fight fucking Neil Magny. Just, just get it over with. He's not going to get point, enough better. It's not going to happen where, just yet, but at some point in the future, I'd actually quite like to see Malot fight uh, Ian Gary. Oh, that would be very neat. Uh, they they might actually do that because that, that's a reasonable progression fight for Ian Gary. I think they're going to give Ian Gary someone ranked. They are. Um, um, but if if not that, then someone, you know, uh, a welterweight action fighter in the like Angelosa or uh, Gabriel Bonfin kind of area. I honestly think Ian Gary is a, a good shout because uh, he is similarly inexperienced. And they have been taking him kind of slow, and Mike Ballant is a step up from people that he's beaten, probably. I mean, D-Rod just looked really bad in their fight, so I don't think it's necessarily the best marker for his level at this well, you point. You could do Mike Ballant versus D-Rod. That'd be a bad You game. could, yeah. Just just give D-Rod fights uh, against prospects until he, loses, or until he wins. <laughs> if he never wins, then it's just easy uh, top 20. Yep. Uh, then Dan Ige fought Nate Landwehr and uh, kind of fucked him up, but Landwehr, Landwehr made a good account of himself, I guess. I don't know. I thought this was, uh, you know, this is an extremely tentative performance from Nate Landwehr, who is normally extremely aggressive and just like goes everywhere and does everything. And the thing is, that's how he wins and that's how his game functions. And, you know, he was able to make it to a decision with Dan Ige by kind of just being a lot more negative than usual and not pushing exchanges where Dan Ige was going to be able to get big counters and just knock him the fuck out. But then also just like let Dan Ige come forward and actually put together pressure offense. And he, you know, Dan, Dan Ige looked okay. And you know, he just easily beat someone who kind of fought this fight to not lose rather than to win, you know? I I think his. Uh, I think the actual fight, he he looked like that, but I think he mostly just got kind of a sun sound. They he just got his his offense shut down pretty hard by the other guy having more firepower, and also the ability to compete in avenues that Nate Landwehr can normally abuse to to get to a victory. Yeah, like what was Nate Landwehr supposed to like try and set up takedown threats? That wasn't gonna work. Yeah, his best performances are against guys that have bad enough defense to where he can get like a jab off and, and then drop down into like a goofy, but really aggressive takedown. Yeah. And then still probably just use that takedown to like come up on a clinch and then like hook off of the break and then do a low kick and then just like repeat that kind of whole cycle. If he's just going to get countered as soon as he tries like the first kind of like opening step of that whole progression, then, you know, he kind of just gets shut out. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a fight that happens to to most fighters like Nate Landwehr at some point, where you just come against a guy that's it, it happens to everyone. Like no one, even Marab Duval is really you can like Aldo limited his offense substantially just by competing with him, and and like having a firepower threat on the feet. Shit, you're right. This fight was just like a way lower level. Uh, Victor Henry versus Rafael Sanz. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens to everyone. Like if, if you. It doesn't matter how much volume you have. People are going to limit it eventually. It's about how good the fighter is once their volume has been limited. You know, Max Holloway showcased how he can deal with that in the second Volkanovski fight. Um, it, like he's he's probably the best uh, volume fighter that has ever gotten their like volume shut down in MMA. I think. 
Um, other examples, like uh, like Rose versus Joanny and Jacek. This is just the lowest level version of that that can still feasibly happen without it just being a, a huge power matchup with the guy that's tall versus the guy that's short at like rank 50 to 70. Okay, do we really need to talk about anything else that happened on this card? No, it was all bad. No, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. I mean, Eamon Zahabi knocked Tarichi Lang the fuck out in like a minute. Just yeah, like and, and, kick and then there was a headbutt. Yeah. In a fight that uh, was just fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we got a fight night. It's at the Apex. And it's middleweights. This really is just my least favorite kind of main event. We've got Marvin Vittori versus Jared Cannonier, which as a fight to make, I guess, is just like fine, whatever. I, I think the matchup completely makes sense, but it's it's getting middleweight's getting to like light heavyweight or uh or heavyweight level with how weird the main event choicing is. Well, just to me, the issue with even making this matchup is just where is either guy supposed to go from here with a win when these are both guys who have been thoroughly stunted on by Israel Adesanya and Robert Whitaker. So it seems a lot, it seems to make a lot more sense to try and put them in matchups that are going to actually you know get someone else potentially in the title picture which i guess they're coming off of in terms of fighting sean strickland and roman delidze respectively and they won those fights uh, but more than that i also just think this fight's going to be whack because you got two guys who will keep doing stuff but don't tend to make adjustments and they both hit pretty hard but don't actually knock people out very often. And I think they both tend to be reasonably well prepared, but just aren't uh, smart enough to make broad strokes adjustments to make matchups more favorable. And they're both really durable. So I think it's just going to be 25 minutes of the same exchange happening over and over again and nobody making adjustments and nobody like getting hurt. In a, it's going to trade low kicks and open side straights, and that's going to be the whole fight. In a weird way, it's uh, 185's version of Dustin versus Justin. Not when it comes to actual matchup, but just the placement-wise and how un- irrelevant a uh, relevant fight can be. Yeah, but, th- th- but that's, a, that's a rematch of an all- all-time great action fight that's it's guaranteed to be fun and it's it's two guys who people love and it doesn't really matter where either guy goes from there whereas this is just like who fucking cares yeah, this one they're trying to make it uh just because they're two fighters that have some relevance but they do not deserve this fight this this fight makes very little sense uh for reasons you laid out prior Matchup, but I actually do think that Cannoneer is is gonna fuck up Vittori something fierce if Marvin isn't able to just be a hoss and and keep Cannoneer out of the fight with uh, cage wrestling and being on top of him. Which I don't really expect to be that much of a thing because Jared Cannoneer is just a really strong defensive wrestler at middleweight, and Marvin Vittori never really been great at getting on top of people and holding them down. You say it's probably he is mostly not. if he gets to just smush Jared Cannonier into the cage. But Jared Cannonier can be 
pretty sneaky with clinch offense. And I know Jared Cannonier can spam uh, a right hand and a right head kick was kind of all Bobby Knuckles uh, needed to style on Marvin Vittori. Because Robert Whitaker's way fast and he like faints and stuff. But he didn't, didn't even really need his jab in that. He kind of got his jab shut down and it just didn't matter because like the right hand, the right high kick was so free. Yeah, I, I think Kanye's probably going to have a lot of success being able to just switch stances repeatedly and, and uh, throw off Vittori's shot selection with that. That is another thing, actually. Um, Vittori is extremely southpaw. You know, all of his offense and defensive tactics as well are basically just like super meat and potatoes, southpaw staples. You know, he doesn't even really go for the big open side body kick all that much. He's more just about like um, using, you know, the, the the lead hand fight to shut down his opponent's jab and then like landing left straights through the open side. Uh, Jared Kennedy is actually pretty sneaky about going southpaw against southpaws, like you say, to throw off their shot selection and use that to find new offensive options that southpaws are less accustomed to because southpaws generally build their games around fighting orthodox fighters. You know, there was that nice, like, shifting right hook that Jared Kennedy dropped Kelvin Gastelum with. Um, you know, I'm going to pick Jared Kennedy, but I do think the fight's going to kind of yeah. suck. I think Bickham Kennedy is, is a very, very good choice. Uh, but, you know, Vittori, he, he has the opportunity in the fight to, to get a bit of an upset, mostly just because he has probably the best cardio of, of anyone, that, or, or best motor for anyone Kennedy's fought, except for Adesanya. But even then, Adesanya was able to just tool him enough to make that not really, not really a factor. And Vittori, he can push a pace while getting fucked up. Yeah, he has. He's very durable, and it's hard to put him off. You you have to be just Robert Whitaker or uh, or Israel Adesanya to put him off on the feet. You have to be dramatically, technically better than him, which I, uh, Jared Cannon isn't necessarily. No, he he just has a uh, a lot nicer mechanics, better timing, and a more diverse shot selection, and a, a better eye for counters. But not he doesn't have any of these, those things on Robert Whitaker or Adesanya. He's just better than Vittori at it, which can be said for most of the strikers in the division. Yeah, and does not have the like footwork and positioning or feints of either of those dudes. Or defense. Yeah, I think he's probably a better defensive grappler than Adesanya in, in a vacuum. But he is, like matchup-wise, I think his wrestling matches up worse with Vittori's than Adesanya's does. Like he, Vittori just has, and, and then Robert Whitaker is just in every single avenue going to be unwrestleable by Vittori. So that was just never an option for him in that matchup. It, it's just a, I, I think also how uh, cut and dry the the ability to pick this fight is makes it uninteresting and a reason that they should have certainly gone with Armin Sarukian versus basically anyone as the as a main event. Yeah, even. Uh... Joaquin Silva, or I guess Joaquin Silva, because he's Brazilian. I don't fucking know. They've made weirder, like, main event matchups, you know? Typically not, like, several months in advance, though. And, I mean, it is pretty weird that uh, 
I guess we're talking about the co-main event. It's pretty weird that um, Armin Sarukian is even fighting uh, Joaquin Silva, who is a fun, explosive action fighter who is pretty limited and doesn't have a great chin. He hits hard, he can slang heat in the pocket, and if he has people overreacting to his power and like being uh, cowed from exchanging with him, then he, he can put that together into... like sick fight ending offense like he did against uh jesse ronson and jared gordon but he's also kind of old and not very active and i guess this fight kind of just happened because sarukian um needed a fight after having to you know after moicano pulling pulling out of their main event matchup and uh silver was just there i guess and you know he's at the point if he's going to make a run and do do anything in the division, it's now. So why not give him a fight like this, I guess? But he's probably going to get fucking tooled by Armin Sarukian and quite likely just, like, knocked out with a left hook or something. Yeah, they're, they're matching Sarukian up very strangely. I, I don't fully understand what they're doing. I thought the Moicano fight made sense. And, like I said, this is just one that they could throw together because Sarukian probably, like, just need, needs to get paid. Well, yeah, it's just like throwing something together for him. I, I, I'm assuming part of the issue is that uh, he wasn't willing to fight people lower ranked than him, and anyone higher ranked than him is either already booked or would rather avoid that matchup compared to other more interesting matchups with larger names that are also easier matchup or easier to fight. Uh, Sergey is is a bit of a spoiler. He's he's gonna make you look not good sometimes even if you are a decent fighter or, or on his level, you know, like he, he, he just doesn't, he's hard to get a ton off against. So he, it's a, it's a kind of, it's just a cursed matchup. Uh, I mean, it should be like fine to watch. I do tend to think that this is like another guy that Armin Sarukian can actually just finish on the feet. We're probably going to see that that left hook that came out against Christos Diagos again. Yeah, I guess he's also young enough to where you, you just giving him some showcases. Just it's, it's nice. So why not? Uh, it, it's it's important for skill development to just wipe some people out, as Charles Oliveira has shown, and, and Makachev and Habib all all show that it, it is a very good strategy to just have your uh, oh and O'Malley as well. It, it, just just have someone fight enough fucking squashes. And then they'll eventually become really good. Yeah, Cheeto Vera, like uh, long win streak. Even Benil Darius, like long win streaks against dramatically outmatched competition, tend to manifest into actual high level success in MMA for whatever reason. That just seems to be a thing that happens a lot of the time. It, it's just drilling, you know. You're, you're, just- you're just like, oh, this guy's just been wiping out cans. How can he possibly be ready for this matchup? And then he just wins. You see it all the time. It makes you really sharp. Uh, it's it's a good way. It's it's why like boxers uh, back when people would have like hundreds of fights. In between their really good fights, they would just fucking murk people way beneath. Yeah, them. And they still do that. They just don't fight they as much. It's just way. Yeah, they still do that. It's just once a year and or, or once every two years instead of uh, like every month. It's really good at making you sharp, especially if you're uh, like a good finisher. The old bum of the month club. You have to just go wipe someone out, and then after a while, you've you've done enough training camps where you're not getting fucked up, and you're not taking much damage from the fight. 
you're you're getting good training in it, it's pretty much taking a few years off and and like sparring in in a fight real quick where you can just knock the guy out and go as hard as you want it's incredibly good for skill development to just have your people that are either not very good finishers or quite in already good finishers uh and, and just have them learn how to finish people even more efficiently and, and safely and also lets them be more creative with their ideas and and try more shit. You know, John Jones even did it. He, he beat up a lot of people way beneath him. So uh you liking anything else on this card? Uh Lucas Almeida versus Pat Sabatini's pretty cool, right? Yeah, it should be fun. Uh rankings wise, I don't know how much it will do for either guy. But that's that's not the point of this type of fight. It's just busy work for both guys at this point. I think it makes sense as a fight to make for for yeah. those guys for where they're at at featherweight. You know, Luke, Lucas Almeida kind of just coming into the fringes of the division, and Pat Sabatini, who like was putting a good win streak together and got dusted in his last fight. And Lucas Almeida is a pretty cool, fun, uh, aggressive counterpuncher cool Brazilian kickboxer action fighter. You know, he really loves to just work his way into the pocket and just slang counter left hooks. Um, kind of doesn't have that much from range and can get just like kicked up a little bit from by people who really just want to stay away from him. And even when he gets his preferred distance and like gets to throwing down in punching range, he can definitely be countered himself um but he's 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 pretty sharp and you know stays very focused on like how to get his own offense going and how to punish his opponents for what they're trying to do to him as the fight goes deeper he really is a lot like his namesake uh thomas almeida pat sabatini like real fucking slick jujitsu guy who's pretty green on the feet and doesn't have great takedowns. He's probably, he's probably going to get torched. You know, you know, this is a real like style versus style fight in the way that you don't see a lot in MMA these days. Cause you know, Lucas Almeida, he also has pretty good takedown defense, but is a little bit Edson Barboza. Once you get him down, he's will just like stay pretty negative from full guard and just look for opportunities to stand up against the fence. Uh, you know, if Pat Sabatini can get, can establish any kind of like clean jujitsu positions on Lucas Almeida. He might just fucking wipe the floor with Lucas Almeida, but he's probably going to be getting torched whenever they're on the feet. So this should be a cool fight. Yeah. There is also actually a, a few fights that I think could be good with, uh, yeah, I mean, even like, I don't have like a much, much, yeah, I mean, I don't have much to say about the, the matchup, but I, th- I think Nicholas Motta versus Manuel Torres is going to be, uh, extremely violent. Yeah, it should certainly be exciting. Entertaining. It's, de- it's definitely going to be fun. Uh, Muslim Stalikov and Nicholas Dalby. Pretty cool welterweight journeyman fight. It, it's just weird. Uh, it's, I like both fighters, but I I have like such a minimal opinion on it. Uh, so Stalikov's probably going to fuck him up on the feet, I would in, I would assume. I don't think... Yeah, seems pretty rough for Nicholas Dalby. Yeah, even Salikov being old, he's still much quicker. And his offense is a lot more fucking off-putting than Nicholas Dalby. Yeah, very crafty from range. And Nicholas Dalby is you know, someone who tends to like to work people with long-range shots and his, his own kicking game. And he's he's just going to be, uh, I think he's going to be dramatically outgunned at that range. And then if he does 
try and like get him close to try and work some wrestling, he's probably just going to get like tripped. And uh, and then he's just going to have to stand up and start the whole thing again. He's just going to get kicked up a bunch. But it should be a good fight. And you you always you always just got to always got to give respect to a guy like me. I mean, J- Jimmy Flick is is always really exciting to watch. So you always got to watch his fights. Um, Hunter Barcelos, Miles Johns. I think Miles Johns offers enough to where we'll get to see a lot out of Hani, assuming he hasn't fallen off a cliff. I think Hani, like the window for him to really make a run at bantamweight is past. But I don't think he's past putting in good performances, particularly against someone as kind of uh, low pace and wait and see as Miles Johns. Uh, Miles Johns, like he is dangerous when he wants to actually like commit to offense, but he takes way too much time off and you know tries to just like play around off the off the back foot and see what his opponent has to offer. And you know, Hanny Barcelos is like pretty fucking dangerous against people who want to do that. And he still has a very good defense against people who aren't, who aren't southpaw and. You know he's a counter puncher, but one who likes to come forward and put people out of position to land his counters. I do tend to think he'll fuck Miles Johns up pretty fierce. He should. Uh, Miles Johns also um, strangely doesn't have that many fights, uh, despite being twenty nine. Most fighters around his level uh, have, have had at least like sixteen or something. I've said about Miles Johns. His problem is that he thinks he's Joel Romero, and he needs to realize that he's Josh Emmett. Yeah, he his fight against uh, Anderson Dos Santos is one of my favorite fights of that year, just because it's a very systematic fuck up, fucking up. Not gonna say uh, like a like a masterclass or anything. He just he just beat the fuck out of him like he was a, a UFC AI or UFC game AI. Yeah, it was just ever since I saw Miles Johns get just fucking torched by John Castanet that I was just like, oh, this guy does not like being pressured, even by people who aren't that consistent about pressuring, such as John Castaneda. The fight took away my belief in him uh, being able to be something, but it was... Uh, it, it was... Like, it makes sense, and I, I don't think it makes his good fights any worse. This just no. seems like one of his bad fights where he gets uh, maybe finished in the second round. His leg's probably going to get torn up, and he's not going to get much grappling offense, and then... He's gonna get left hooked a couple times, unless uh, Hani's just really past it. Oh shit! We got Zhaugus back. Oh yeah, we we have uh, the the best uh, someone that he he would have uh, been my top pick for the season of Ultimate Fighter if if he got brought on. Because bring him on the prospect or on the uh, like vets team that got cut. And he would, even though he's 125, still run through everyone on this current season of Fighters Prospects. Oh, they should have done that. Man. I just have a, sh- I have a real soft spot for Zhaugas. And I'm glad that he's fighting again. Cause uh, you know, he, he was talking about retirement after that uh, loss to Charles Johnson. And, you know, you look at Zhaugas's record. I think he's like, He's like one and five or two and five or something in the UFC, and he could you you could literally like flip most of those results around. I think pretty much his only definitive loss in the UFC was when he got knocked out by Manal uh, Cape. But he just, just judges just don't like him for some reason, and I totally get you know just like lose it, 
losing a massive robbery to a guy who fucking looks like Charles Johnson in a fight where you get kicked in the penis repeatedly. I can totally get why he'd just be like, fuck this, I'm out. But I'm glad he's back. He's just a, a cool boxing technician at flyweight. He's the kind of guy that division needs. And I enjoy having, having him around. Yeah, he's he's really funny uh, as a person and conceptually as a fighter. Yeah, we always used to call him Flyweight Junior Dos Santos. Cause yeah, because he, he just loves like body jab to overhand and and inside low kicks. He he has a very heavyweight, uh, like shot selection while being in the lowest weight class. Uh, like half like a good size. heavyweight, how you'd want a heavyweight to fight. Yeah, if he was a heavyweight, he would be like the best heavyweight to ever lift. He's just able to, you know, kind of jab, jab to the body, overhand, off the body jab level or, or like any level change. He can shoot a takedown off of it. Got an inside low kick to kind of fuck with your stance. He's urgent. He's he's just a very fun fighter who goes to the decision all the time because, uh, and then drops the decision because he looks like he's losing even when he's winning. He doesn't even necessarily have bad optics. He he's just doesn't look like a world beater so people underrate his offense but uh maybe now that he's got his new silly haircut he can get some love from the judges yeah it's an entirely without thing he should also dye it yeah he should just dye it blonde would be hilarious okay that's it let's get the fuck up out of here uh as always if you enjoyed this content all the other great stuff that the fight site puts out please consider supporting us on patreon where a pledge of just $5 gains access to a huge library of really high-quality analytical fight content and a great uh, community through Discord. This has been the Forbidden Technique Podcast. Uh, we'll catch you next week, where we'll talk about fucking any cool stuff that happens on this card. And fight night we've got next week, headlined by Josh Emmett versus Ilya Taporia absolute banger at the top end of featherweight look forward to it we'll see you guys then